Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, November 9th. As promised, we have our WTA Finals recap planned for all of you on today's show. And as promised on Friday's episode, unbeknownst to our guest, the man we expected will join us to recap it. Of course, essentially, he's a co-host of this mini break podcast at this point. He was on the grounds in Fort Worth for the duration of the WTA Tour Finals, an editorial producer for our friends at Tennis.com. It's our dear friend, returning champion, David Kane. David, welcome back to the show. Are you feeling the love in Texas? Are you about to move there? No, I got to say, I'm happy to be back in New York, home of the world's best salsa, which is a, a fun <laughs> reference for all the for all those with the television. But um, I I don't think I got into it as much as Caroline Garcia. Certainly didn't get into Texas as much as Barbara Krachkova, but that's a high bar. But I think I got into a bit of the got into a bit of the Fort Worth spirit. But all, all told, I'm glad to be back. Well, unlike Daniel Hunchakova, you did not break your hand, so you come out at least unscathed from your experience in Texas. Did you enjoy yourself some barbecue? Is it worth the hype? First of all, no one's ever looked that good with a broken hand. <laughs> Second of all, I would be lying if I said I really experimented culturally with the um, with the Fort Worth cuisine. I was not only right across from, but I was overlooking a cheesecake factory. And just in the spirit of continuity, of trying to keep myself sane, I did go there every day for lunch. However, I ordered off the skinny licious menu. So I really did cut the the, the salt intake by about a, a good a good two thirds. Same with the calories. So I, I come I come to you somewhat svelte and off of my second straight Soul Cycle class of the day. We had a very cathartic finish. We rode to "Beautiful" by Christina Aguilera, which you may not know, but uh, it's a song that Westhoff wrote about me. And then we finished <laughs> the class to "Since You've Been Gone," which is a song that I wrote about Westhoff after we broke up for the second or third time. But yeah. some some inside information for you there. No, the since you've been gone, I knew. I will say you don't have the Fort Worth Five. You look very, very skinny, as always. So, yes, the Soul Cycle, whatever is worth. King. I will say one of my favorite tweets of the week, just because we know you as we do here at Crack Rackets, when I saw the first Cheesecake Factory tweet from you, I was like, oh, it's going to be a good week for David. Like, he's in a place where he needs to be. So, if all else fails, that's the fallback. Do you expense that sh- I got his first of all, God bless the tennis channel per diem and <laughs> skinny chicken pasta G- gets you regular, gets you, gets you productive. Just got me in a zone. I would that's, say. that's what I like to hear in your content reflected as much. So much great work. I highly recommend going to tennis.com. If you missed anything from the WTA tour finals, is there a piece to you, David Kane, that aged particularly well? Well, I did write one story about Arena Sabalenka embracing the Tiger persona, being a better fighter. It certainly paid off for her here at Fort Worth with the great win that she got over Igish Fiontek. I had some funnier stuff with, again, Cheesecake Factory themed. My first night uh, or second night in Fort Worth, I ran into one on the Jabor on the takeout menu. And I said, do they have any idea who you are? And she said, I don't think so. I said, I will tell them. I mean, I... <laughs> I've said some things about Ange Jabour and where I think she stacks up in relative to the top 10 or a top 10 in the past, but I certainly think she earns a place of honor at any Cheesecake Factory throughout these great United States and internationally, even in the one, that you, certainly the one at the Dubai Ball. But um, those those two I'm particularly proud of. And also I got into a little bit of a back and forth with one Iga Svantec over Taylor Swift. You know, we got into a bit of a back and forth over the best songs on Folklore and Evermore. Not my personal favorite efforts on on the part of Miss With. I'm more of a loverhead. 
sense. Mm-hmm. I'm a lover, not a fighter, as you know. <laughs> yeah, I've read the lyrics to the songs you sent to West off. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. Anyone in the Cheesecake Factory line, if a server gives own Jabur, oh, like one of those buzzers saying, hey, it'll buzz when your table's ready, that is a disqualifying sin for that Cheesecake Factory location. I would write a scathing email to management because, come on, it's a top five player in the world. She should get first preferential seating. Uh, if nothing else, I will say the Sabalenka piece was particularly excellent as obviously she makes her run to the finals. She beats Iga in the semifinals. And look, there's a lot of Sabalenka for us to discuss today. There's a lot of lot for us to discuss here on today's show. And I want to run through all of the results. Of course, shout out to our friends at Tennis Point before we do for their support of this show, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. Hey, the tours have died down. You might as well use this time to get out on the court yourself. All of the latest and greatest equipment. Maybe you're looking fit like David. You're ready for a new set of clothing. Uh, go to tennis-point.com. You'll find everything you're looking for. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you. With that said, David Kane, before we get to the actual on-court product, there was much hoopla made throughout the course of the week about Fort Worth as a host site for the WTA Tour Finals, whether the rushed nature of picking a city, putting together this event, compromised the enjoyment, the excitement, the buzz, dare I say, surrounding these WTA Tour Finals. And again, you were at the grounds, you were on the grounds, is how you say that in English, from day one through the ending of this event. What was your outlook on that storyline? What were, dare I say, for lack of a better term, the general vibes in Fort Worth throughout the week? I got to say, I think the vibes were good. You know, I'm someone who's been at many a WTA tournament from start to finish. I've been at many empty looking day ones, which is absolutely what we got to start the tournament. Unfortunate situation with the Monday start, Monday finish. But by the end of the tournament, we had a very nice grand finale to the WTA season. I mean, I think obviously the WTA is in a predicament with its typical finals location otherwise unavailable to them. It's unfortunate that they weren't able to get a location secured sooner. You know, I, I would like to think that if you're a fan of tennis who lives in Texas, it's very likely you'd already booked tickets earlier in the year to an Indian Wells, a Miami, a U.S. Open, even a Guadalajara, if you're feeling exotic. But <laughs> I think, you know, that that just comes with the territory of trying to take a stand, you know, and obviously with COVID, even if they weren't taking a stand, I think they would be in just as big of a predicament. We don't know where they'll be next year. But in terms of venue, in terms of the quality of the court, the quality of the crowd, I think it was certainly as good as you could expect under the circumstances. And as I said, it's certainly the tournament was a grower, not a shower, uh, unfortunately, for those who were <laughs> eager with the screen cap uh, clicker. I mean, it's certainly when you're in the stadium, it doesn't look as empty. Obviously, there were some pretty damning screenshots, as we know. But, I, you know, when you're sitting in the in the thick of it, you still see some people peppered about. It doesn't look as brutally empty. And of course, that was during that was right in the middle of a um, I believe a changeover from the double the first doubles mm-hmm. to the first singles. I mean, that's that also comes with the territory of just tennis you know when you're buying tickets you're going to want to buy tickets for the semifinals for the finals you know yes there's this round robin format but how familiar are typical tennis fans with that rhythm of an atp or wta finals that you will get the opportunity to see the top eight throughout multiple days it's not just necessarily up the way to the final but 
all told, you know, could it have been better? Absolutely. Everything could be better. But if it came back to Fort Worth next year, I think they would probably be in pretty good stead because I think otherwise it was a very well-run event. I am curious as a follow-up, and I do want to get back to some of the points you made, but how much of the positive atmosphere, because it did seem in conversations with the players, it did seem in the content that was produced, how much of it is produced with, you know, glasses that are meant to display pro WTA content is a discussion for us to have, perhaps. But it felt as though maybe more than anything else, the players were having a ton of fun. And that comes with the territory when you have half the field participating in their first ever WTA Tour Finals. There's going to be a buzz and excitement amongst the players. It's always fun when players are willing to embrace Halloween and some of the content we saw produced was Halloween themed. Everyone's laughing. Everyone's having fun. That said, you also saw the energy on court, whether it was Maria Sakri playing maybe her best event of the year through round robin play and the positivity that brought. Arena Sabalenka fist pumping like crazy through every match that she played. Even Kasatkina winning her match against Coco Goff. You saw the emotion throughout the course of that one. How much of the positive vibes was, were player-driven, I guess, is the question I come back to. Because it did feel like the players enjoyed themselves, and that helped the event. It was interesting to see players like Garcia, like Krechkova, really just, you know, embrace— is a great example as that, well. All that is to offer in Fort Worth. And to be fair, Fort Worth is a small suburb of Dallas relative mm-hmm. to the city of Dallas. There isn't a ton to do. As, as I said, I was at the Cheesecake Factory— <laughs> 11 out of 10 days you didn't go to but, tcu practice I, I didn't i didn't have parson with me to drive me um, but, um you know it was i think the wta player cohort have been exposed to a lot of exotic or unfamiliar scenarios and circumstances over the last couple of years you know Obviously, there's been a great investment in China over the last decade. There haven't been a ton of Chinese or even Asian top eight or top 20 players, you know, relative again to the number of top eight and top 20 players there have been. So for for these European American players, there's something sort of charmingly culturally eccentric about Texas. It's accessible enough, but it has some quirks to it that I think makes it like I said, accessible to to players who'd never been there before. I mean, no no one had, and most of these players, I'm pretty sure, had never been to Texas in any capacity. There hasn't really been a major tour stop in the state for a very long time. But I think it was there was something about it people have seen. I think just through cultural osmosis, the cowboy hats, the cowboy boots, there was something that they could get into, and that probably added to their comfort. It was a quiet, sort of sleepy town. They're in a nice area of the town. There's sort of a um, historic district in which we were all staying i think it kind of just led itself to the um just the quiet calm way to finish the season the court was was slow but it wasn't mm-hmm. too slow certainly as it was in shenzhen or even as it was in singapore it was a, people were able to really dig into it in the case of maria sakari she was really able to adapt her game to it quite well and it was quick enough for players like arena sabalenka and caroline garcia to succeed so i think it kind of had something for everybody yeah, it was certainly the tennis on court did not disappoint. And you're right. I do think the day one photograph of what was certainly a lower than full occupancy stadium set a bad rep for the event early on. But I had no issues with the semifinal or finals crowds just to put a final bow on things. I thought by the end, 
Fort Worth crowd showed out. I thought it was a very fun environment, a very fun atmosphere in particular for the semifinal Saturday. I thought that was probably the best day of the event that Friday, um, but I was pretty satisfied by the end. It was very familiar crowd growth to me. I, and I also just think as a rule for a tour that received much accolades for taking the stand, I don't know if you can necessarily then take issue with sort of the result of taking that stand. I mean, this is the predicament that they're in and they're going to be a little bit behind the eight ball. It's not the same situation as what the ATP has set up where there's this familiar location, a pre-lubricated tennis audience that are just ready to file in, have that Sunday to Sunday you know, schedule, although the ATP has had Sunday, to, has rather has had Monday to Monday finals in the past. And I'm not entirely clear where I'm not entirely clear why I know my coworker, uh, Stephanie Libide and I were trying to do the research uh, over the weekend. We were thinking maybe there was a Jesse J concert to blame back in 2013. <laughs> Unclear why the O2 arena had a Monday to Monday in 2013. We didn't go back farther than that, but they had a Monday to Monday final and I don't, that, there, no one really took issue with that. So that was also a strange issue that was popping up on, on Twitter as well. Yeah, I, this is why I always enjoy working with you, because halfway through, I remember things I want to ask you about. Remind, oh, I don't need a reminder. I made a note. We'll talk about the WTA going back to China at the end, because I am curious for your take on that, is that it's certainly a wrench into WTA end-of-year scheduling moving forward, if that is going to be the decision. With that said, environment aside, the Encore product did not suffer this week in any sort of fashion in Fort Worth. There was fantastic tennis from start to finish. Now, it was notable that in the first two days of singles play, first round of singles play, all four newcomers lost their opening matches. And did that sort of set the tone for what ultimately was a four returning face semifinal round? Yeah, it sort of did. That said, there are plenty of different takes, uh, takeaways in particular, I think from a tennis perspective from just about each of these players. The place I want to start, obviously, though, is with our champion, Caroline Garcia, who puts together one of the better six-month runs you're going to see on the WTA Tour. Certainly one of Probably the second best second month uh, six month run we saw from anyone this season. Obviously, number one belongs to Iga Fiontek. But you look for Caroline Garcia. She ends her year forty five and twenty overall, thirty six and nine down the season's home stretch from Bad Hamburg through the finish line, and is ultimately your champion in Fort Worth. Fort Garcia wins over Kasakina, Goff in group play, then the wins straight sets over Sakari and Sabalenka in the final two rounds. She was broken once in those final two matches, and that's where we start today's conversation. David Kane, you look for Caroline Garcia. Of course, I've got a stat for you to start out our tennis analysis. Garcia holds serve 80.3% of the time this season. That's number one amongst top 50 players on the WTA Tour. She's the only player to eclipse that elite of the elite 80% mark. And for some context, who are the players who go over 80% for a full season? Prime Serena, Prime Osaka, that's, you know, a great covet of a tournament. She's over 80%, but for a full season... It's the elite of the elite servers. That's where Caroline Garcia held, uh, where she was, excuse me, this season from a statistical standpoint. Now, certainly, indoor hardcourt, to your point, slow enough that it doesn't compromise her movement, but fast enough that her weapons are accentuated. 
it was a really good surface for Caroline Garcia. That does not mean that her performance was anything short of remarkable. And I guess place number one where I ask you in our coverage of Caroline Garcia, David, is, is this the peak? Like, is this as good as it's going to get for Caroline Garcia? What were your takeaways from her level on the ground? I mean, it could be. I mean, yeah. it could be her peak. We've seen a lot of players peak at the WTA finals and not necessarily be able to replicate that uh, going forward in the next season. Conversely, we've had other players named Caroline who've won the WTA finals and then went on to win the Australian Open. So it's really sort of anyone's guess based on historical precedent where Garcia goes from here. It was important to me personally that she brought up in her post-championship press conference the U.S. Open semifinal against Jabor, because as great as Garcia played through Cincinnati, through the summer, through Cincinnati, through the U.S. Open, the great match she played against golf to make the semifinal, she played bad against Jabor in what was most likely the most consequential match that she played all year. Yes, she she racked up a lot of match wins, three titles. The one match that really mattered, she didn't show up. And she said as much in the press conference. She said, I played so well getting into this tournament. And then for me to have that performance, it didn't sit well with me. And in many ways, she comes to the WTA finals for the first time in five years. It's pretty wild. It's a lot heavier back then, but back to Caroline, you know, she comes back, she plays as nearly as well as she did five years ago to make the semifinals, plays a phenomenal match against Kasakina, stops and on fire Sakari and outguts and outguns a Sabalenka in the final, a Sabalenka who did not serve that badly, played, served about as well as she's played, has served all year. Um, and that's a pretty consequential match. So in that way, we're kind of back at net zero with Garcia. We have the U.S. Open semifinal on one hand, and then we have this performance this week in Fort Worth. I'm, I'm willing to equate the two just based on the, the volume of what she was able to do at Fort Worth, having three really high-level matches in a row three matches that really mattered, a match to get over to the semis, the semis in the final. The fact that it's not a grand slam makes me a little reticent to overhype this result because, again, she's got to do it a grand slam, and that's something that she is really yet to do aside from that golf match. But, again, the semifinal really wipes that out. You know, when she's, as many players, as is the case with many players in this field, when they are playing at their best, they are very hard to beat. A Shviantek is certainly hard to beat. A Jabor is hard to beat when she's playing at her best. She can become almost unplayable, that, that sort of game. And certainly the same is true for Garcia, and it starts with that serve. When she is serving as well as she did this week, she's very, very tough to beat. And she's someone who has advantages and opportunities on really every surface. She's played well on grass, on clay, and on hard courts. So if she's able to maintain this good vibe and maintain this sort of approach to important matches, she'll absolutely be a factor in 2023 and probably one of the most important factors of next season because she's one of the few players to get a win over Svantec this year. So I think there's a lot to consider with Caroline. I'm very happy for her because she's you know, a great personality has really worked hard over this last decade, you know, a lot to live up to just being from France, getting the famed endorsement from Andy Murray when she played and failed to serve out that match against Maria Sharapova, the 2011 French Open. And here we are, she's still just as good, if, if not better, with all the potential that we ever thought she had. So now it's time for her to continue to do the work to deal with the fact that she's got a new team, the coach that she was with Bertrand Perret split with her right before Fort Worth, that didn't seem to be a great sign heading into the tournament, but the fact that she played as well as she did is a testament to the fact that she's employing that game plan that she had all year. Now she's got to bottle it and keep it going next year. No, absolutely. And the thing for Caroline Garcia, 
you mentioned the surface success, a variety of surface success. She won titles this year on clay, on grass courts, on outdoor hard courts, and on indoor hard courts. And what it comes back to in that number, 80.3% hold percentage, epitomizes it. She's got non-negotiables in every match that she plays. If the serve and the forehand are clicking, as they did in just about every match in Fort Worth, it's going to be four all in the first set or five all in the first set. And then maybe she connects on two of those on-the-rise returns, which at times got her into trouble. You're right. Like the first set against Sabalenka, I don't want to say it was unwatchable, but part of it is it's just like, all right, Garcia's not making this return because Arena's hitting the serve too well. And anytime. You know, Arena may get her racket on the return, but Garcia's just cleaning up on the first strike. And so, yeah, we're going to get to 4-all. We're going to get to 5-all. A breaker's ultimately going to decide this set. And the breaker was very fun. Um, But, you know, there's a routine nature to how Garcia won every match down these six-month stretch of the home season where it's just, I'm hitting the big first serve. I'm hitting the big forehand. She closes so well at the net and obviously is a doubles Grand Slam champion. That's a test of, you know, again, it's not a surprise. The net skills are there. It does feel very translatable that for Garcia, there's no reason she can't bring this serving success into next season. And, you know, you look for Garcia... She had no top 10 wins before June 20th this season. She goes 8-2 and two down the home stretch against top 10 opponents. Obviously gets four of them here in Fort Worth. And by the way, like the, looking at the top 10 counts before Fort Worth and after Fort Worth, it's like, oh, you finally were forced to get top 10 wins. So some people accumulated some top 10 wins here for this season. But Garcia now has eight top 10 wins this year. Do you know that's second most? on the WTA Tour. You know, trails Ego with 15, but then Garcia has eight. Next highest is Kasatkina at six. And so what does that tell me? Is that the discussion you and I have had all year about the dearth of definitive tier two that's pushing into tier one talent. Garcia's upside, it's not the it's not tier one, but it's the highest end of tier two. Where you're just like, if this serve, this forehand is clicking, it's going to take a really good performance from someone to beat her. And so for me, as I look forward, it just feels like this serve, this forehand is replicable. And because of that fact, because of how easy this success is, I like her outlook moving forward. Yeah, I mean, much is made about Garcia's hyper-aggressive return stance. But the reason why she's able to take that risk on the return is because the serve is working so well. And the serve is really... A technical marvel. It's very simple, very easy to replicate, as you said, and she's getting high yields on it. I mean, when Sabalenka took the bathroom break after the first set, she was keeping that shoulder loose, and it certainly paid off in that last game when things were getting tight, and Sabalenka had her opportunity to break back. Is that a match that Garcia loses last year, a few years ago? Maybe. Sabalenka was playing very well that day, so it's very logical to think that she could have come back, but Garcia really held firm, and that's a testament to her mental improvements. It's a testament to this you know, regimen and the idea that she's going to be hyper-aggressive. And I think that is probably the main difference between her and Sviantec is that Sviantec's A game just has so much more margin built into it that Garcia does not have that same margin. It's much it's much streakier and, to, and really requires her to redline in a way that Sviantec is not, does not have to do to her benefit. So that's, I agree, that's probably why she wouldn't be in that same Iga Sviantec tier, but at the same time, this is a game that can get hot, potentially, and if she has that mental block eliminated, that could take her through seven matches. 
the big thing for Caroline Garcia, she was 9-11 through the first six months of the season. She has a Lyon semifinal, a Sydney quarterfinal, and nothing else to defend before the start of the grass court portion of the year. She's sitting at four in the live rankings. It's like the reverse Muguruza, where Muguruza was sitting all like year inside the top 10 because of how good her last year is. It's like I it's the abbreviated version of that, where Garcia's going to be in the top 10 all year long because she has nothing to defend until those, or at least for the first six months of the season, because she has absolutely nothing to defend through that first portion. It's like if she makes second week Australia, and then she's a pretty good clay court player, second week French Open. She should be in the top 10 next season. She should very much make the, like, the window is open for her to make the WTA Tour Finals again next season with how the points are configured. I mean, obviously, she needs to have the results on court, but she is going to be highly seeded and have advantageous draws in most of the events she plays for the first half of the year. It's the Bedosa Contavite scenario. I yeah, mean, sure. You finish the year with a lot of points and you have all year to make it up. so Yeah, I don't know why I said Muguruza. That's a way better example. Yeah, we've obviously seen that not work out <laughs> for Consovite and Bidosa, unfortunately. But, you know, for Garcia, again, someone who does not have the surface limitations that certainly a Bidosa has been quite vocal about not liking this surface or that surface and Consovite getting sick and still having, you know, her own, you know, maturing perhaps to do, you know, should this stabilize? And that's the big thing is, will this stabilize? I mean, she did just come off of sort of an unexpected coaching split. She seems to be back more with her father, who, you know, was with her for a very long time. And then for a while he wasn't, and now he's back. So there's always that to read into perhaps. But, you know, again, the fact that she has such clean, easy technique as a natural athlete, I mean, there's always been reasons to count her in. So no more time than now to do so coming into 2023. Let me ask you one more stupid Garcia question, then we'll move on. Two-time double slam champion, career-high number four in singles, has made the second week of every slam, now into a tour finals. How close is she to a Hall of Fame career? Probably would need a top two career-high ranking in singles and or doubles if she hasn't gotten one yet. She's two in doubles is the career-high. Okay, would probably need at least a couple more slams in doubles if we're really, you know, going in that way or she'll need a grand slam final a grand slam singles championship to be top two in singles that's really going to push it i mean we're looking at their the nominees from last year include included cara black who was a phenomenally prolific doubles player and a solid singles player didn't get didn't get the over the threshold last year we don't know what's going to happen this year so in terms of hall of fame it does seem like the those voting are a bit are being a bit more um selective in their voting process and obviously by the time she retires maybe the time when you know we're lining up with you know a Djokovic a Nadal being on the same ballot and that's going to make things very difficult for some of these players who may may, who may have been able to sneak in under the wire and obviously Garcia has not been in the conversation as much Mm -hmm. over the last couple years she'll need some consistent seasons as a top five player in singles to really or win a lot more double slams that's probably the two avenues that I would see for her but a window is now open. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. That's really what I'd like to establish as well is that it's like, all right, again, if you have a really good first six months to next year, you're back in the WTA Tour Finals. Now you've made it three times. You're right. She's at two double slams. That number probably has to get to at least five. You know, if she can sneak in a single slam final, now it becomes an interesting conversation. 
the window's open, and that's crazy to say after how Caroline Garcia had fallen off, but this is a player who's obviously been very talented since the moment she picked up a racket, has always flashed this sort of upside, and again, a monumental victory for the 29-year-old up to number four in the live rankings, which is probably where she will end the season. I mean, yeah, if you're a top five player in both singles and doubles at some point in your career, you're doing something right. So shout out to Caroline Garcia. Shout out to our guy Sam Duvall at Top Notch Management as well. uh, Big win for our friends at Top Notch. All right, Garcia was your champion. That said, some scholars, David Kane, had argued that the real winner in the WTA Tour Finals in Fort Worth is Arena Sabalenka. And that all of the people, two of them perhaps most prominently sitting here on this podcast today, who continue to buy the Arena Sabalenka is one of the only other Tier 1 players outside of Ego right now on the WTA Tour because the upside can be that high. I think we were somewhat vindicated by the results we saw from Sabalenka in Fort Worth. Now, certainly, you know, the 2-4 and four loss to Maria Sakkari, she's got to throw that in just to keep us honest, but... To beat Jabur in three sets to kick things off and to have two or final semifinals on the line in that Pagula match. I believe that was the order it went in, and she wins that match three and five. You see the emotion on her face as she put herself in a really good position to qualify for the semifinals at that point. 6-1 in the third over Iga. She gets a little U.S. Open revenge. And then she's broken once in the finals against Garcia in Fort Worth. You look for Sabalenka. You know, she came into the match 30 and 20, uh, the event, 30 and 20 overall in the year. I think it was four, uh, it's 13 maybe of her 20 losses this season. Yeah, we're in three sets. 14 of 18 three-set losses last year. You know, and yet despite all the ups and downs, despite the double fault percentage over 10% for a full season, which I have never seen before, bravo from anyone north of Sarah Irani, you know, Sabalenka ends up in the tour finals. Sabalenka displays that ability to when she plays her best tennis, that best is better 90% of the time, if not 100% of the time, than whoever is on the other side of the net. And so, I don't know, when you look at Arena Sabalenka's 2022, stock up, stock down, David Kane. I think it was a very good week for us arenapologists. I think it was... <laughs> They were dancing in the streets of Fort Worth, yeah. and I was there with them. But, um, I mean, look, we're playing by the rules of this game, and this game dictates that Iga Svantec, Angebor, and Jesse Pagula are the world's top three players. Submitted without comment, but that is the current top three. Sabalenka beat all of them, and I think that's a great thing for those who are looking at Sabalenka as a player who certainly deserves to be ranked amongst them. You know, I think there's been an interesting sort of meta debate perhaps going on between a Jabor and a Sabalenka in terms of who's maybe going to have the better upside. And I think we really saw a tremendous um, mental victory for Sabalenka. And it really kind of exposed some some of Jabor's mental limitations in the round-robin format at a big tournament where she's up against the world's top eight and there's nowhere to hide. You know, Sabalenka believes she can win these matches and even from 4-2 down in the third, comes back and wins it. You know, obviously, Sakari played amazingly through the round, Robin. I am willing to throw it out. Uh, <laughs> fascinatingly, of course, um, Sabalenka leads Sakari 4-2 in their head-to-head. Sakari leads 2-0 at WTA Finals. Iga Svantec leads Sabalenka 4-2. And Sabalenka is 2-0 in WTA Finals. So 
a little bit of a little bit of symmetry for your for your pleasure but um you know to to play as well as she did against Pagula, where she really didn't have the scenario all in her entirely in her own hands she had to win in straight sets typically when players are asked to complete this sort of round robin math they tend to not do that great i mean famously i believe angelique kerber just needed to win one set against lucy shafazova in 2015 and she loses in straights to a, a shafazova who was already out of contention mm-hmm. kerber couldn't get that one set obviously it did end up i think launching her career spectacularly the following season i think she really cited that as a, a really defining loss but still i mean when you ask these sorts of players who are typical when you ask these sorts of players who are used to this knockout format, just get the win, get over the line, and then you're asking them to win in straight sets, three sets, whatever, it becomes very complicated for them. And she was able, and for a player who, for whom things can get complicated quickly, Sabalenka figured out how to win that in two. That was almost more impressive to me than the Jabor match. But of course, nothing tops the fact that she was able to beat Shviantek the way she did and really gave herself a tremendous amount of kudos in the sense that, you know, she really didn't show up to a lot of these matches against Iga this year and has really started to claw back into that rivalry in a way that's very impressive. Fo- followed up on the disappointment of the U.S. Open, went one better, gets over the line this time, really takes it to Iga in the final set. And, you know, what happened in the final happens. Garcia played a phenomenal match. It was really reminiscent to me of the Wimbledon semifinal last year against Pliskova, where Sabalenka played a really great match. And just like, if you flip a few points, things go her way, but they didn't this time. This is the form that she needs to keep bottled into next season. Because if she is able to bring this that serving performance into January, she, to me, is an infinitely greater threat to the Australian Open title than even a Garcia. Yeah, Sabalenka was 2-4 and four against the top 10 coming into this event. All four losses were to Iga Shriantek here this season. And, you know, now gets wins over Conteve, Bedosa, Pagula, Jabur, and Iga this year. That's running the gauntlet of, like, the who's who of the top six throughout the course of this season. Now, to your point, I mean, a couple of things. A, against Iga, it was one all in the third set, or maybe it was 2-1 Sabalenka, and then the set was over, to your point. And it was just the way she was able to take the return early on the rise was lacing the forehand down the line. I mean, the impressive numbers to me, you know, she had nine double faults against Iga. She had eight double faults against Pagula, which were her two most impressive wins of the tournament, and yet she broke Iga six times. She broke Pagula five times. She broke serve, I think it's 36.7% of the time this season. That's, you know, about a percent better than your average top 50 player, and, you know, that is above her career average. I continue to say, outside of the second serve yips, Sabalenka got better at every other part of her game this season, that willingness to move forward. The fact that if you leave something in the center of the court, the point is over. Sabalenka has either won it with a winner or she's hitting something that's hitting the back fence. But at this point now, the rally is over. The only thing that, I don't even want to say scared me. It was like Caroline Garcia served perfectly. She also has the sort of game style where Sabalenka will leave a return short and sometimes opponents bail her out by hitting something neutral back. That's not Caroline Garcia. Anytime Sabalenka left something short, Garcia capitalized on that. She took it as a short ball. She moved forward. She executed a really smart game plan against Sabalenka. That said, she also played perfectly throughout the course of that match. And I think if you're Arena Sabalenka, the takeaway, as always, to your point and to our point, something a Sabalenka truthers, apologists, however you want to say it, arena apologists, um, have emphasized forever, 
is it's just, and I hate to keep using this term, but it's the non-negotiables. It's the Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club where you're just like arena can play that transcendent level of power tennis to where as well as Iga played in set number two. And Iga did a really good job in set two of just playing deep down the center and saying, I'm not giving you anything short anymore. We're not doing this. Like, beat me at the other, you know, beat me at the regular tennis. Don't beat me at this arena Sabalenka stuff, which I know you're going to be better than me at. But then Arena in set three said, no, 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 we're going back to my terms. Well, I'm going to take the return a little bit earlier. I'm going to keep hitting the big first serve and just not give you a chance to hit anything cleanly from the center of the court. And that's the thing. She takes the racket out of the opponent's hands. And that's why I think it's stock up coming out of this year. It's like she played maybe her worst possible tennis on serve, and yet she still ends the year in the top eight ends the years in the Fort Worth finals. Like, yes, there was a vacuum at the top of women's tennis, and the still non-optimal version of Sabalenka is sitting at the top. What does the optimal version look like at 24 years old? I'm still buying into. We'll see it soon. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, on one hand, you do look back on this season for anyone not named Iga, or I guess Ash Barty, uh, to a lesser extent, and say, you know, I left some opportunities on the table. You know, I had some chances to really, you know, establish myself at the head of what is, by all accounts, not as strong a field as what we are typically used to on the WTA tour. But at the same time, you know, you look at what Sabalenka was able to accomplish this season, the improvements she was able to make both technically and mentally. I mean, I don't think we give enough credit to the fact that Sabalenka has changed her service motion. It's little Mm -hmm. tweaks, but I mean, we don't see that happened that often. And when we do, we typically see it get worse. I think Pavlyuchenkova off the top of my head, I remember trying to change her serve motion and it just really tanking her for a while before she was able to get used to the new motion. You know, Sabalenka comes to the U S open, comes through the summer with a new serve pretty much and blitzes the field, makes the semifinals. So, I mean, I think the fact that she's always willing to learn, incorporate outside voices, has a supportive team who really saw her through a really tough emotional period not even just the double faults, the fact that she wasn't able to play Wimbledon, a, play, a tournament where she made the semifinals. And certainly you have to think, had an opportunity this year in a field where Barty was not there, Shiontek is not great on grass. You know, that's that's going to be one of those what-if tournaments for her, certainly given, the, especially given the way that Rybakina was able to win that event. Not entirely dissimilar players, and Sabalenka beat her last year. So there's a lot to be disappointed about, but I think Sabalenka has the right mindset. She's improved so much. She's continuing to grow. And if she does hit that point, where she is, everything's all coming together, I think we will see her become fairly unstoppable and certainly the closest rival to an Iga Shriantek because even though Sabalenka takes about as many, if not more, risks than a Garcia, Sabalenka already has the inherent belief that she belongs with the best. And I don't know if Garcia necessarily feels that way yet. I think Sabalenka always comes to these matches believing she can beat a Barty, a Shriantek. It's sometimes why she doesn't play that great, but there's never that, I never sense a doubt from her. And I think that's going to really pay her dividends in a field again, where there's going to be a lot of opportunities. Five good runs, Stuttgart, Rome, Cincinnati, US Open, Fort Worth, and she's a top 10 player. Like I, I completely agree with you. The ceiling continues to be shown would you put her tier one, or is Ika still alone in tier one? Um, gosh. I mean, I would like to put her in tier one. I don't know if that's fair, but yeah. I, maybe if she had won the 
the WT well, finals, maybe it you could also yes. be by virtue of I think there needs to be more than one tier one player. Like just by process of elimination, someone's got to be the closest challenger to Iga, and maybe in your mind, this is her. Look, Tyra Banks saved a lot of girls <laughs> on America's Next Top. I always like when potential. we start there. There we go. I did a lot of Tyra references on this week's episode of The Volley, which we just published. <laughs> Steph and I, I highly recommend checking it out. Did a lot of had a lot of good Tyra quotes in there. I have two. Okay. I stuck them in. But Ty- like I said, Tyra has kept a lot of girls in the game based on potential. And that's kind of how I feel about Sabalenka. Her potential is just, she has all the potential in the world. And if we're going from potential, momentum, and upside, I would put Sabalenka in tier one. If we're still dealing with reality, which boring, right? But like if we're in reality, maybe she's not in tier one yet, but certainly in an ideal world where she continues at this pace, then yes, she's tier one. I like that you say snuck in the Tyra Banks references as if people didn't expect them. Snuck in, sort of barnstormed them, you know. Yeah, come on now. That barnstorm would be a much more appropriate uh, term. Yeah, I we don't live in reality, David. We're here on our Cracked Rackets universe. I'll throw her in Tier 1 right alongside of you, and I think that's the two right now. Those are my two Tier 1s. Yeah, with absolutely. Bianca Andrescu still getting an asterisk, as always, of like, well, maybe, like— uh, not not a tier one, but not a tier one. She's one um, A, A for Andrescu. Yeah, yeah t- or no, tier A for abstract. Um, but yes, okay, those are your top two performers. Let's kind of rapid fire more quickly through the rest of the field. Six more to go. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 but we'll do it fast, I promise. Coming out of 2022, Maria Sakkari. Stock up, stock down, particularly with this Guadalajara final, Fort Worth semifinal run, which was just so desperately needed. She got it. But does that lessen the middle six months of her, her season in your mind? Does it cloud it? Did she get back to where she needs to go? You could say stock hold, by the way. That's fine as well. Where are you with Sakari? I have an interesting theory about Sakari that I mm-hmm. wanted to posit to her, but I never had time to. But don't you feel like in many ways her getting to number two or number three in the world was sort of kind of the worst thing that ever happened to her in a way? Because don't you think if she had been 12, 15, 18 – she may have been one of those players to like accidentally win a slam and would have been like, whoa, she came out of nowhere. But the fact that she was like top eight and there was all that pressure and attention on her that she certainly internalized, it kind of like she outfoxed herself in a way. It's like she played too well. And then by the time she got to like the tournaments that matter, it was like, oh no, what do I do? But um, it's tough to rate Sakari because yes, she came out of a great week in Guadalajara. She comes to Fort Worth and plays really great tennis in the, um, in the round robin stage. And she credits a lot of it to the surface and says the surface forced me to be more aggressive. So that gives me a little bit of pause because I think, well, if it's the surface, like it's got to be more instinctual at this point where you've been at this for like a decade, like you got to figure it out already. So like if she could roll up the surface and mail it to Australia, like I think certainly Svitolina wanted to do when she won the tournament in Singapore in 2018. Um, I mean, certainly this was a big mental week for her. The fact that she was able to get the good win over Jabor after Jabor, you know, beat her from a an entirely uncompromising position in Rome in the spring, a match that Sakari certainly should have won and maybe in many ways sort of kickstarted that sort of several month malaise for Sakari, you know, gets a solid win over Sabalenka and then beats Pagula, you know, in in two really tight sets. And that was the, the match that really in many ways was that sort of sliding doors moment for both of them, because one of those, you flip a few points in that Sakari Pagula match, Pagula's up 1-0 and maybe her week gets off to a little bit of, of a better start, particularly because we're used to seeing players come from, the tournament before and really run the table that didn't happen to Pagula, but it happened to Sakari. I feel like hold because at her best or at her most instinctive tennis, 
is not to be as aggressive as she was in Fort Worth. And so I'm hard pressed to say that she comes into the beginning of next season playing that high flying aggressive tennis, you know, and then we don't really know how she's going to recover from this match against Garcia because she had a lot of momentum. And I really thought she was going to run away with this title and then gets blunted pretty emphatically by Garcia. It was not close. So all told from the lows to the highs of this year, I would say it's a halt. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we see what the ceiling is for Maria Sakari at 27 years old. It's about like six in the world, which is where she finishes the year. And she's going to get a lot of good wins when she plays her best. She'll get to those finals like she did in Indian Wells and St. Petersburg earlier this season, obviously, to get to the semifinals and Fort Worth finals in Guadalajara. I'm very encouraged with wins over Kudermatova, Collins, Pagula, Sablanka, Jabir to end the year. It's another year of growth, her sixth in the last seventh from a hold percentage perspective. And there's no doubt when the first serve is landing, her first serve, first forehand combination now is elite. And there's a reason she's top 10 in hold percentage here to end the year. What she got back to so well at the end of the season, I thought, was relying on her physicality, was not forcing herself to play so aggressive so early in rallies, but letting it come more naturally within the flow of the tennis played. That's what I thought was most impressive in her round-robin performance was just how in rhythm everything was for soccer. It felt like for the first time in months she wasn't forcing anything. Now, she probably needed to force it a little bit more against Garcia to just break Garcia's rhythm. But Tier 2, it's like Maria Soccer, you are a Tier 2 player. And there's no shame in that. Like, there has to be players ranked 3 through 12 every single season. And with all due respect to Sakri, like, that's her range. And I think that's fine. So I would say agree. Stockhold, it's like, if this is your prime moving forward, you're going to have a really fun five-year run. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think she's one of those players who, with the field that she's in, maybe overranked a little bit. But I think if she can continue to create these opportunities for herself and play more really good matches. I feel like that's sort of the knock for me on Sakari is that she plays a great match and then lets down. And she played three great matches this week. And so if she could really start to string those together, her chances of getting deep at a slam increases exponentially. Yeah, completely fair. All right, let's do the Iga conversation quickly because shout out Iga Nation. Far too kind to us here on this podcast. That said, I have nothing to add for Iga. Like Arena played phenomenal tennis phenomenal tennis to win that third set 6-1 in the fashion that she did. And look, Iga dominated the round robin. It was the conversation we were having every day on second serve. Shout out to the T2 team and Mike Haston for tolerating my nonsense all week long. Agam Gorgagon for taking the time to join us as well. That's how I say his I'm last name mode. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, when I see it, that's how I see it. I'm like, McGrogan doesn't work for me. Um, but look, I mean, like, It takes one of those service performances. It takes one of those days where you can take the racket off of uh, take the racket out of Iga's hand. And there's like a list of four players who are capable of doing it. Sabalenka is still one of those players. I don't think that takes anything away from Iga. Her making the semifinals and not winning this event does not lessen what she was able to accomplish this season. I've already gone through the stats. Only player top ten in both hold and break percentage doubles the top ten wins. Top 20 wins, she's off the chart compared to everyone else. Now, I will say I'm devastated, truly devastated. Break percentage for Iga to end the year, 49.7. She doesn't eclipse the 50% mark. I'm crying on the inside. Doesn't lessen the season she had. Like, I have no change 
like if you're not buying stock in Igor Sviantec, this would be like seeing Apple right as they released the first iPhone, and it's already on the rise, but you're like, trust me, this thing's about to turn into a behemoth. Like, that's Iga coming off of 2022. You know, it's funny. I think if you go back to our preview podcast for this uh, tournament, I think we outlined this exact scenario of, like, what would constitute a good tournament versus a disappointing tournament for Sviantec. And I think we said if she made the semifinals and lost to Zabalenka, I think it would be a great, you know, good tournament for her. Because at this point, for Sviantec, in most situations, it's win or bust. But given the way it all kind of shook out for her, she played really great in the round robin and ran up against an on-fire inspired Sabalenka. I mean, that's that's the kind of person I would expect to beat Sviantec. And those are the kind of circumstances I would expect her to lose, you know, like in mm-hmm. a match like that against Sabalenka. In a no match day off, against- which doesn't really matter, but it does matter. And also in Ostrava to Krejcikova, I would categorize yeah. those two similarly. And I think shout out to Krejcikova, sort of as like, if not 1A, maybe 1B. So if she's working her way back to next year, I think she's yeah. certainly in a great mental headspace and has a game that can threaten the Shvantec. It mm-hmm. way similarly and not too dissimilarly to um, to Sabalenka. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe a little disappointing that she really prioritized this tournament, didn't go to Guadalajara, seemed to really want to peak for this event. Maybe had some trouble, if she's honest, finding the motivation after the great season that she had to then like have to prove herself again. Maybe it was a little bit daunting, kind of wanted to be done with the season. And we're certainly getting that uh, from Sabalenka. I just want the season to be over. I'm so over it. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, no shame. And she's still by far the best player in the world. She's got double the amount of ranking points of the world number two. And is really in no danger of losing number one until the summer at the earliest. And that's if she has like a terrible, you know, start to the year because her points, while she has many of them, they are dispersed fairly evenly. So she'll never be losing a tremendous amount of points all at once. Unless, as I said, she has several awful events in a row. So she can only go up. She remains in the GOAT debate. We We have Garcia in the Hall of Fame debate. And we have Schwantek in the GOAT debate. I think that's where we stand right now. Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair. I agree with you. Semifinals was status quo. She reached the status quo. So, Iga, congrats. You had a fantastic 2022 season. The Americans, tough run for Pagula and Goff in both singles and doubles. Obviously, we saw for Coco Goff, really should have won that Kasukina match now. You know, tough loss for her against Garcia. Garcia served extraordinarily well. The Iga matchup is what it is. For Pagula, I think it's probably to win that set 6-1 against Jabur, not get through that match in particular. That's the one that stings the most. The Sakari match was pretty good tennis, 6-6 six and six across the board. I mean, the, we're glass half full here at Cracked Rackets always. That Coco Goff at 18 years old made this event, got a look at it. Long term, that's all that really matters for her. For Pagula, it's a little bit different, right? Because 28 years old, career high number three in the world. This is hard to imagine what a better season for Jessica Pagula looks like. That said, I think these are two players who getting here constituted success. And yeah, 0-3 in your first run sucks, but like, it happens. Uh, you're nicer than me. I don't know. It was bad. <laughs> it yeah. was bad to be there. You were there. there. That's bad. why I ask. You know, it was bad to bear witness to it. I mean, obviously, it's hard to really say for whom it was worse because on one hand, Pagula played the better matches and lost, but then 
you know, Coco had worse losses, but then it's probably, you know, we look at her as having so much upside. So is this really going to, you know, impact her long-term? She's playing at BJK Cup. She seems to have, you know, emotionally recovered from the disappointment of the WTA finals. But it is tough to, especially in this circumstance, to make a WTA finals for a Pagula to be ranked three and golf to have made her first slam final, you know, and, and maybe not having the bona fides necessarily. I mean, obviously, you know, Pagula ran into Iga Shiontek a lot. Maybe if she had had different draws this year, maybe she would have had a few more top 10 wins. But, you know, this is your opportunity to kind of justify your presence at this tournament. You go 0-3. It's, it could be one of those, you know, slam the brakes moments. I mean, we go back to a Eugenie Bouchard who came off of a first Grand Slam final, qualifies with some aplomb to make the WTA finals, mm-hmm. goes 0-3. I don't, I don't think she even won a set. Um and was kind of never the same, you know, started the year pretty well, but then, you know, maybe you look back on that sort of opportunity to prove yourself and being so dismissed by the top of the game. It kind of, it impacts how you see yourself, how the field sees you. Maybe the fact that things are a bit more level across the top eight, maybe it'll be a bit easier for everybody to kind of feel like, oh, well, it could have been me. You know, I had a bad, I could have had a bad week. She had a bad week instead. You know, Pagula's pretty laid back, you know, able to kind of shake off and put things in perspective. You know, we'll we'll have to see because, and I think if they do have not so great 2023s, we will look back to this and say that was really kind of a, a sliding doors moment for them. Yeah, golf is the one where I think it's fine. Like I have no concerns. 18 years old to get to this event, like she should have won the Daria match. She really should have, and I mean, she the, served for the, the opening set. Like the, that, the, the thing court I, was not good for her. I mean, that, yeah, that. that's I mean, true. Well, I did like that. It, good. Yeah, but go really ahead. Expo- but it really exposed her is the problem. Like, it Well, it's just that Kasaki kept weaknesses. going to the forehand over and over and well, over I mean, again. And that you? was the issue. Well, that's what I'm saying is it's just like, okay, that sucked. I'm, but if, if you're 18-year-old Coco Goff, who has always had this mentality, you can just see going through this experience and her and her team sitting in a room and saying, never again. We're never allowing that to happen again because that is unacceptable for us moving forward. And that's why, like, I think you have to be glass half full because she got this out of the way so early in her career. I want the man who fixed Sabalenka serve to fix the Coco Golf forehand. I kind of feel com- I feel confident. Obviously, Sabalenka serve maybe wasn't sure. as problematic, but we might have see some really big changes in the Coco Golf forehand. But, you know, if the takeaway from Daria Kasakin is, you know, hit every shot to her forehand. I mean, I was even saying to Danny Hantakova, who we were uh, talking before, we were talking during the first set of the Kasakin and golf matches. She said, oh, I you know, I kind of need to be paying attention to this. I said, Danny, it's a Coco golf match. If she loses a set, forehand good. If she, if rather, if she wins a set, forehand good. If she loses a set, forehand bad. And she said, yeah, you're kind of right. Um, but, you know, that's sort of the book on her. And I worry that that's only going to become more and more the case. You know, hopefully she has a good week at BJK to kind of shake it off. She is so grounded. She's so mature, well beyond her years. You know, so there are things to to take positives from. But I think ultimately the reason why she's 0-3 at this event is why it's going to be very difficult for her to win a slam. Fair. I think that's fair. I think it's still very early. So I'm, I'm reserving the right, still holding out, still not eliminated from the GOAT discussion. Jessica Pagula, though, final numbers. 3-12 and 12 against top 10 players, 7-13 and 13 against the top 20. That's concerning, and it speaks to, well, what's the ceiling? She's going to beat everyone she's supposed to beat, but what's the ceiling? How does she take that next step? Something for us to watch going into next year. I mean, I actually thought for Kasakina, she looked great 
in some of her – like, I, I thought this – again, how can you not be stock up just based on her year, how much winning Kasakina did this season from start to finish? That said, I think this is the ceiling. Like, this is – you know, again, so I guess where we end, and we'll start with her. I want to play one more game with you. Will they be back or not? We're just going to ask you, in their career, will we see this player back in a WTA Finals at some point? Let's start with Kasakina, yes or no. Oh, um – she is young, so I'm 25. inclined to lean. I'm inclined to lean a little towards yes for that reason, but at the same time, based on what she did to qualify for the top eight, I would hope she does a bit more the next time. I mean, that's sort of the the push and pull on Kasakina. She's great. She's fun. She played amazing. She was one and two in round robin. Mm-hmm. I mean, like there's sort of that like push and pull. She is limited in a way that a. Not a Sakari. But maybe even a Jung Chin Wen or a Bianca Andreescu or some of these other players aren't. She is limited in a way that a Sabalenka certainly or a Garcia is. And it's why Garcia got over the line in that match and why, you know, as great as Kasakita played, her defense is not as versatile as Iga Sviantek's. I mean, it's brutal to be Daria Kasakina and to have the bigger, better model, who's only a few years younger than you, atop the game. And you must feel like she's kind of playing my tennis. Like, why aren't Mm -hmm. I? better but she's you know Ika's a better athlete Ika's got better technique you know there's there's all those things so maybe maybe leaning towards yes only because she's 25 and who knows maybe she'll come in next year and rack up you know she'll have that higher ranking maybe she'll rack up some points and kind of stay in the conversation and certainly in some ways it was hard but also kind of easy to make the top eight this year was it's a strange one to really handicap I say no um golf golf (laughs) yes I agree soccer Yes. I agree. I think she sneaks out one more. Sabalenka? Oh, yes. I agree. Garcia? Yes. Yes, because of the math. Pagula? I don't know. Um, Just because I haven't said no yet, I'll say no. I'll agree with you and say no. Jabur? Mean. Um, <laughs> Will Jabur be back? At a WTA finals. I mean, I think for Jabor, it's such a wait and see because she plays such a kooky, wacky game, was really upset to not qualify for the semifinals, was really gutted by the Sabalenka loss, was even more gutted by the loss to Sakari. Again, she had just as much of a shot as Sabalenka. They had the same mathematical scenario. And if anything, Jabor was in better position Mm because it didn't matter what Sabalenka did. Jabor just had to win and Mm -hmm. she couldn't do that. So, you know... The combined, she's encountered a lot of disappointments in 2022 for as great and historic and trailblazing as her year has been. She has also encountered some brutal, brutal disappointments. And for someone who takes those to heart, you wonder how she's going to be able to recover. So I'll say no. Why not? Yeah, I, that's a good, I think she gets one more. I just think disappointment at the French Open this season that's a low-hanging fruit from a points perspective. I could see her doing well in Australia as well as we wait for all these young players to try to separate themselves. I'm going to go slight yes, but I see your point, and I think it's a good one to make. I think that would be the surprising no, but the no of the group. And then we don't need to have the eager conversation because we both know the answers are resounding no. Just kidding. Obviously, she will be back. Last question for you, David Kane, before I let you go. WTA reportedly interested in returning to China, whether it be for the tour finals or for extended tour play, your reaction to that reporting? 
Well, it's hard to really diagnose what the exact mindset of the WTA is. I read the reporting from the New York Times that seemed to lean a little bit more towards no in the sense that the the circumstances under which they return seem impossible. You know, they still seem very certain that they want this investigation into Peng Shui's accusations. I don't see that happening on China's end. So even though there was that report, that press release that initially said we will be going back to the WTA finals in Shenzhen next year, and people were thinking, what? That's crazy, but you just said. And so it seems a little bit more up in the air. I I mean, it, the one thing that was encouraging was at least it seemed like that Steve Simon, CEO, was interested in exploring multi-year deals with the next city that he goes into business with. I think these one-year contracts, with first with Guadalajara, then with Fort Worth, made things difficult. I think, you know, if you're a WTA Finals venue, you want that, you know, guarantee that you're going to be the host and then you can promote it accordingly. So I'm certainly excited by the prospect of a permanent WTA Finals location somewhere other than China. Um, I was not in Shenzhen, but I certainly heard things. And, um, you know, if for no other reason, that surface broke a lot of players, uh, Bianca Andreescu, namely uh, chief among them. So for that alone, I would certainly would hope if they do go back to Shenzhen, they fix that court and make it a little bit faster. Um, because ironically, I loved the court in Zhuhai. If that's where the WTA, I mean, I don't know if they could really justify that if, if there is a scenario where they can go back to China. If they can find that kind of court, that would be great. But um it's a long and winding answer to your question. I'm very sorry. You'll have to hear my full my full response. No, that's on Patreon. The, for the right here, uh, that is the answer I was looking for because it is. There are a lot of little details that have yet to be followed up on, right? To the extent of well, what is the player pot being offered and what are the actual figures being offered here for these events? How many events are going to be placed? There's what safety mechanisms are in place for not only players, but media and anyone covering the event moving forward. And by the way, are we going to get a sit down with Peng Shui? Like there feels like there are still unanswered questions that need to be addressed before the WTA tour dives in. Also, does this reveal some sort of financial shortfall? Like how dire straits are things for the WTA that this is the decision they have to make, right? Doesn't this, this, this does not seem to indicate things are good. I mean, I think anyone with eyes, they don't think this is a secret, you know, knows that the WTA put a lot of eggs in the China basket. Everyone knows that. They had nine tournaments in China in 2019, and a lot of them were great, well-run events. Wuhan, a lot of fun. They made great burritos and staff dining. I would go back, if not for the pandemic, but I like um, Zhuhai was a lot of fun. I've been there before. You know, I've I've had a lot of good experiences at Chinese tournaments. I do not mean to denigrate the, uh, the China swing. Yeah, I don't see how they can go back. I do understand that, you know, not going back creates a lot of financial pitfalls. I mean, there are, you know, reports about, you know, a a merger with the CBC uh, investment group, and that might, you know, take a little bit of financial pressure off the WTA. You know, ultimately, I hope that next year it is clearer sooner the entirety of the WTA calendar. Wherever they land, I hope that it is obvious with more than six weeks or eight weeks notice where we're going to be and where it's going to be announced. I mean, I certainly heard where it was going to be a little bit sooner than everybody else did, but I mean, even that was not a tremendous amount of notice. So, you know, and I think there are a lot of great options in the world, you know, and, you know, there are also other um, 
there are also other elements to this discussion, like prize money, as Ike Svantec brought up. No, they're probably not going to get $14 million in prize money anywhere other than China. You know, for optics sake, I would certainly like it to be equal. At the same time, these numbers are so astronomical that it's hard for me to really like wrap my head around it. I don't love that they're not the same, but the fact that they're still cracking one, two, three, four, five million, I mean, want to trade w2s ega we can yeah. i don't have to but um so i mean it's been exciting to see it in guadalajara it was cool to see it in fort worth i'm excited to see where it goes next wherever it goes uh, i i started racking up some potential cities someone brought up rio de janeiro as a potential um solution you know given the rise of your beatriz haddad mayas of the world and even your luisa stefani's in doubles i mean there's certainly a lot of options you know and i think different cool cultural experiences that the players can really immerse themselves in. That's the WTA. They're coming for me. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, all of which to say it was a very good WTA finals from my perspective. It was cool enough to be on a 17 hour flight as much as I love Singapore. But um, yeah, all of which, all of which to say it's, it's anybody's guess. And hopefully we know sooner. We don't have to guess as long. Yeah. All right. I like that. By the way, you know what? Iga Shviantek will go for full circle here. Doesn't get that you do. What's that? Tennis Channel per diems. So she wasn't at, you know, Cheesecake Factory. I didn't see Ega at the Cheesecake Factory. I'm, I might Which is kind of disappointing. Answer. Like, I feel like Ega would thrive there. From what I know about her personality, I feel like Cheesecake Factory would be a place she succeeds. Well, I mean, if she's learned anything from Magnishka, but but I mean, I, I'll tell you, I peaked very early. I saw Own Jabron the second day, and every day after that, I was always kind of a little, I felt a little twinge of fear that I was going to yeah. run into another player Amen. or other WTA person. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh God, this is so shame based. But I, as I told Owns at the time, I was like, "Well, the fact that there's like a an hour long wait to sit down kind of makes me feel vindicated because I'm like, well, this isn't just my shameful, guilty pleasure. This is actually a thing that is enjoyed by a tremendous amount of people. So it was kind of in that way. It was like, oh, I'm not the only person who thinks this is delicious. Maybe not nutritious, but delicious. No, I love it. Well, as always, DK. I appreciate you coming on here to help us break down the WTA Tour Finals from every angle. Again, you wrote about it during your stay there, and I want to give you one last opportunity. Tennis.com, what should they be reading? What can they expect from you over the coming months? Well, as I said earlier, Steph Livaday and I released our episode of The Volley. I feel mm-hmm. strange calling it episode. It is it is written. One does have to read the episode where we go deep into the concept of a next-gen finals. And would the cool. WTA be better served by a WTA finals or an elite trophy as they had had over the last mm-hmm. several years? I make the argument that a WTA next-gen finals would be a lot of fun. Again, to quote from Tyra, the ATP stole from the best and made it their own. I mean, that rise, that ATP next-gen finals would be nothing without the WTA Rising Stars Invitational. And ironically enough, the current next-gen finals field would be everything that the WTA would have dreamed of from their Rising Stars Invitational back in 2014. I mean, you have a field that would have included Anissa Mova, Leila Fernandez, Jen Chin Wen, Wang Jiu, Anastasia Potapova. I mean, just a really diverse, marketable set of young women. Amarta Kostyuk. I mean, it was really, I mean, even if you don't have your... Coco Goffs or Ike Shantek's participating. Heck, you know, you know, you didn't have Carlos Alcaraz of the ATP Next Gen Finals, and you didn't have Sitsipas the year before that. So, I mean, it, this is a fluid situation. It'd be very cool to see Next Gen. I would be more excited for that personally than another elite trophy. Some people disagree with me. Steph was one of them, but I encourage everyone to read it and come up with their own decision. I'm spoiled. China, you want tennis back? Pay for both. Uh, I think that should be the solution there. But as always, that sounds fascinating. I'm glad we got to sneak it in. Tennis.com, the place to read it all. Of course, a shout out here, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the evident job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for the phenomenal 
David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell the people? And that's the breakup. Oh, man. No, you, the, the songs are still coming for Westoff. Come on. The breakup is unofficial, but we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, as always, my friend. Then Westoff, take me back. <laughs> 